Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we're into extra time. Kia ora and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time. I'm Clay Wilson. We've got a lot of variety on this week's podcast. Later on, we'll hear from Kiwi rowing star Mahe Drysdale, Olympic race walker Quentin Rue and his battle for equality, as well as chat to a man lining up for his 26th coast-to-coast. But first, we're going to talk cricket, and joining me here in the Auckland studio to do just that is former Black Caps and Northern Districts wicketkeeper batsman, now commentator and analyst Peter McGlashan. G'day, Pete. Morning. Thanks for coming in. Um, let's start with more recent matters. We've seen overnight the New Zealand under-19 men's team at the World Cup in the semi-final. Quite a convincing loss to Bangladesh. Now, people will probably correlate that with the men's game and the strength of the two teams in the men's game. Were you surprised to see a result like that at that level? No, I mean, the under-19s can be a little bit fickle at times. Uh, I guess you haven't been in the system for as long when you're in, at that age and, and you haven't had the, the resources of the larger countries to kind of develop you through. And sometimes New Zealand in particular has been tripped over by some of those younger, newer nations who just have huge volumes of players. Let's be honest, Bangladesh and India and some of those countries in the subcontinent have 100,000 times more players than we do. And when you get to those big tournaments, you know, New Zealand have had a history of being tripped up in the past, unfortunately. You went to the under-19 tournament in South Africa as well. Yeah, it was a wonderful tournament. It's a very favourable time in my career. You know, as as much pride comes from playing at the top level for the Black Caps, there's still something really special about being at an under-19 World Cup. Um, we had a really great team, Kyle Mills, the Marshall Twins, Michael Paps. Um, we had a, a star-studded lineup. We made it all the way through to the final, so we got through to the playoffs like these guys have. And... You grow, shall we say, when you spend five or six weeks away as a team overseas uh, and get lots and lots of challenges, not just on the park, but some of the things off the park as well. You mentioned those names there. We see in the current Black Caps team, Kane Williamson, Tim Southey, Trent Bolt, off the top of my head, um, also played in the under-19 system. So it's obviously quite a good breeding ground where a lot of those players do come through to the top level. New Zealand's done pretty well over the years. Um, I think our side might have been the only ones that have made the finals, Uh, but all those guys have tend to come through in clusters. That sense of uh, camaraderie, the fact that you've gone through some tough times together at an age group level does often translate into success when you get further on because you're just familiar with what everyone can do and I think you know some of the challenges Tim Southey's faced at the moment is probably because he hasn't got his mate Trent bowling at the other end. I thought it was interesting. They had a couple of close finishes earlier on in the tournament, this under-19 team, and they won, which I thought was a little bit ironic given what's been going on with the Black Caps. I'm not sure if you picked up on that and what you might make of it. Yeah, well, um, I think it's Christian Clark and uh, uh, Fergus Lelman are two Northern Districts players that we've, you know, keeping tabs on uh, in the Northern Districts governance role that I've been in over the last few years. And uh, it's good signs when you see players who can handle pressure situations, make good decisions, and then execute. 
because there's there's several parts to that equation. You can you can know what the right thing to do is, but if you can't execute, you're not going to get the outcome that you want. And as we've seen in those T20s against India, New Zealand were often put into situations where they could win the match. And we don't know whether the plans were incorrect or the execution was incorrect, but the combination of the two meant that we fell short quite often in those T20s, particularly in the in the Super Overs. So fingers crossed, this under-19 team doing well in those tight finishes will hopefully mean that the next generation of cricketers coming through will be a little bit more comfortable uh, being put under those uh, pressure situations, being asked tough questions. Another team that might be in some pretty tight finishes in the next few weeks to come is the White Ferns. They were well beaten across all three of those one days against South Africa, but then we've seen a complete turnaround in the first two T20s. What are we seeing here between the one days and these first couple of T20s with these two teams? Well, the T20s, uh, as we've seen through the the men's game in the last couple of weeks and what the White Ferns are seeing at the moment, it can often be won or lost by one or two players. So when I was playing, a T20 could be won by one exceptional performance. A one-day, a 50-over game, you kind of needed two or three people to have a good day. In a test match, generally, to win a test, you need four or five players over the course of the five days doing well to kind of combine into a winning result. So the T20s are a little bit more of a lottery. We've got some... Tremendous talent in Divine and Bates, um, uh, Katie Perkins, Katie Martin, uh, a lot of players who have had uh, women's big bash experience and, and the Kia Super League over in England. So it's a it's a format which our semi-professional women's players are very familiar with. And so that we get into t- tight situations, they kind of know what to do. The 50-over game uh, requires more people to kind of lean in, and it means that if the rest of the team aren't maybe up to scratch or a little bit cold, they haven't come into the series particularly ready to go, then we can get found out. We need to remember that the White Ferns probably went about six or seven months without a head coach. Um, Hayley Tiffin announced that she was stepping down, and it took a long time for them to appoint Bob Carter into that role. He may well have been doing things behind the scenes yeah. from all accounts. But what it does mean is that effectively most of last winter, those players will have almost been left up to their own devices. Yeah, they would have programs, but they wouldn't have had the you know, the the constant communication with a head coach saying, this is the direction, this is how we're going to win, and, and these are the plans. So I just felt we saw the White Ferns in the first uh, one day, uh, ODI games against South Africa just a little bit rusty, coming together as a group. And we do need to recognise that South Africa are a very good team that have also benefited from the Women's Big Bash and some of these other leagues around the world. Mm. It does appear to be something of a new era. And the players, I was listening to Susie Bates talk the other day, and she was sort of almost painting it in that way, that it's a, a new coach. Um, some new young players on board, um, a new captain and Sophie Devine. And they've obviously had some pretty disappointing results at major events in the last three or four years. So this T20 World Cup for them, especially with a player like Sophie Devine in the team, and not not discounting the other players because they have obviously a lot of quality players, but, I mean, she's probably the most dominant player in New Zealand cricket at the moment, wasn't she, across men's, women's, any format? Yeah, it's a position that Susie Bates enjoyed kind of 12, 18 months ago as the number one player in the world, and then Sophie Devine due to her um, performances both at international and domestic level uh, in the professional competitions around the world has meant that now she has stepped up into that role. And and they do go to a T20 World Cup in Australia uh, with some confidence because they've got match winners across the board. They're just yet to have a tournament where they gel. It's been a long time where uh, since that, that White Ferns team have... Um, worked together, had uh, successive performances time and time again. And you just hope that this tournament away might be a chance under a new coach to do that. Mm. 
there's been plenty going on with the Black Caps, to, to say the least. Let's start with that first one day. Eight consecutive losses, three tests in Australia where they were completely outplayed, five T20s in, uh, here in New Zealand against India where they got close and some, well beaten in the first couple and then close, and as we were talking about, couldn't get over the line. But it was a heck of a way to turn around an eight-match losing streak, wasn't it? Chasing down basically 350. It was a really disciplined performance. Um, you know, chasing that score down. I think it's the second highest run chase that we've um, made to, to successfully chase down a score. Uh, Seddon Park is a ground where they've had success over the years. Ross Taylor loves it. I think he averages 62 or 63 at Seddon Park. <laughs> the mayor of Seddon Park, or something. Yeah, he should run for the mayoralty because he does live locally. Um, but uh, you know, they. they they had to do some soul searching, and you know, I don't want to say it, but maybe in some ways the focus on the coach actually took the pressure off the players mm-hmm. because Gary Stead effectively was put in front of the firing line due to the way his um, his time away was handled. Maybe it was a very um, savvy PR move that no uh, one else saw coming. It, it was kind of a double reverse triple <laughs> bluff, I think, um, because for me it was merely a comms breakdown. Uh, I know, you know. Some people might feel that it's because of the eight losses in a row. But I spoke to um, Brian Stronach maybe a year or a year, 18 months ago when they were making the appointment when Mike Hesson stepped away. And he, he said to me at the time, look, we're going to have to do things differently because all of these professional leagues around the world are paying way more money than we could possibly pay our international coach for a much shorter time. And effectively, he'd, you know, they'd resign themselves to the fact that Mike Hesson could earn twice as much money in a quarter of the time doing these professional comps. So they knew that if when Gary Stead or whoever got the job, they needed to do it differently. And I suspect what's happened is internally they've known that, but they haven't prepared a way of communicating that at the appropriate time. And lo and behold, it just fell after eight successive losses. Yeah. And the New Zealand fans were hurting, naturally, and they took it out on Gary Stead. Uh, and it's maybe taken the pressure off the players. Someone like Ross Taylor, elder statesman, has stepped in and said, I'm going to grab this game by the scruff of the neck. Tom Latham not affected by the losses against India in the T20s. Nisham full of energy coming in. Uh, and that, that change of personnel was just enough to kind of get them across the line, galvanise them together. Ross Taylor, uh, I spoke to him a wee while ago, and he's been asked this question a lot about the retirement question, about when he's going to finish up. I mean, he's clearly still a world-class player, and his record in one-day cricket particularly has been... Nothing short of. I think he's second to Virat Kohli since the 2015 World Cup. He hasn't ruled out the next one-day World Cup. Do you see that being a realistic possibility for Ross Taylor at his age and and with what he's doing now, or do you think it's maybe a bridge too far? I think it. Well, it depends on who they've got around him. For me, um, you know, I think. It was Kane and Ross that dragged us through to that World Cup final last year. If you take their stats out of it, I think Kane averaged at the last year's One Day World Cup 80-odd and Roscoe averaged 45-50. The next highest average was something like 25 out of all of our batsmen. And so if Ross isn't there and the likes of Latham and Nichols haven't kind of matured into that confident um, fill-the-dressing-room personalities then we're going to be wanting. Um, You know, Ross, he's always going to have that experience, that huge wealth of runs, which, you know, you you can't um, buy. Um, So it'll just be a case of whether or not they've got the resources as they get closer to that World Cup as to whether or not they can afford to give him the exit that he deserves, which is on his terms, or whether or not they're in a case where it's like, 
we need to entice him to stay a little bit longer because if he's not there and the rest of the guys aren't quite comfortable playing at the international stage, um, New Zealand, if a cane got injured or someone else got injured, would need someone who can kind of, yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. steady the ship. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Looking at this one first one-day result and what a great performance it was, it sort of does help, I guess, fans forget a little bit what happened before. But if we just put things in perspective here, how much concern should fans still have about the previous couple of months that came before this result in the first one day? Yeah, I think they uh, there were two um, heavy losses. The India losses were close, but the Australian losses weren't in the tests. They're very different problems in the two formats. The test problems are, are quite different to the short-form problems. Speaking about the Indian T20 series first, T20s are effectively the scariest, most pressure um, parts of a one-day game. And the reason we won that one day against India, the first one day, was because of the large partnership in the middle of the 50 overs. It was less about what we did at the start and less about what we did at the end, and it was more about that huge partnership from Taylor and Latham through the middle, which really meant we didn't have to do much towards the end. Uh, And that's what 50 overs allows you to do. You can have a poor start or a poor finish, but there's still enough volume in the middle of the game for you to wrestle back control and do well. Where we failed in the T20s was we just deer in the headlights, bowlers couldn't contain batters, batters were obsessed with boundaries or unable to get off strike, or when a bowler executed well like Boomer, who was exceptional at bowling a Yorker, our batters didn't have an answer. So we can take the lessons from the T20s and apply them to either end of the 50-over game, or we can assess these next couple of 50-over games and assess the end bits and take those learnings, lessons, learnings, I can't remember which one's the right one, <laughs> and take them to the T20 World Cup later in the year. So we can still learn things from the ODIs against India now, which will still be important later on, like who bowls at the death and who bats at the death. Yeah. Gary Stead, uh, we, we spoke a little bit about it uh, just a few minutes ago. Um, where do we sort of, where do you stand on this? There's been a lot said about it, and part of me feels like it's a, perception issue more than anything and you mentioned about the way it was communicated and perhaps a bit of a breakdown there is it just a perception issue or is there are people right to have a a feeling of sort of why now in terms of the actual performance of the team I think that I think it's both I think they they do have the fans have the right to ask why now Um, there's been some rumors that Gary Stead changed his mind and didn't want to take the leave but maybe his management or David White and co said no no you should you've booked it in you should take that leave Uh, and only they know whether that was the right or the wrong decision based on how the next week pans out Um, Gary said is a different person to Mike Hesson Mike Hesson was very well organised but he also you know um, fronted probably more stuff Gary Gary has been in almost every position that New Zealand cricket has, from the White Ferns coach to involved at the academy, a provincial coach, can, uh, coaching Canterbury, which is great um, in a lot of ways, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. he's seen every part of you know the New Zealand cricket system. So, you know, he he should carry with him lessons from all of those parts of the New Zealand cricket machine. And you know, the question needs to be asked: This is an when you get to the Black Cats, when you get to the top. The only bit he hasn't been exposed to is the public. 
when you coach at the White Ferns, coach the New Zealand 19s, coach at the academy out at Lincoln, that's the one missing part of your experience that you bring to the table is what is John from Ikatahuna when he calls Radio Sport or whatever, what does he think about how I'm doing my job? Mm-hmm. And that's the one element which I don't think New Zealand cricket necessarily prepared for when they said it makes total sense for you to have a break during these ODIs because the T20s are ready for a World Cup and the Tests are part of the Test Championship. Well, I'm sure we haven't heard the last of that situation. Hey, thanks, Pete, for coming in. We'll have to leave it there, but I really appreciate your time and your thoughts today. No problems. Double Olympic rowing champion Mahe Drysdale says he's been given a good chance to succeed at the Tokyo Olympics this year. Drysdale has regained the single skull spot in the national squad and is all but assured of chasing a hat-trick of medals in Tokyo. Robbie Manson took over the single skulls berth in 2017 after Drysdale took a year off following his Rio Olympic gold medal win. However, Manson has struggled on the international scene and moved into the double. Drysdale told Bridget Tunnicliffe he's glad his decision to fight for the spot has paid off. I guess I knew there was nothing to lose in going for the single. Um, and I say that because if I was in the single, you know, I still had, had options ahead of me if if it didn't work out. But it's very hard, for example, if, if you're in, a, um, in an eight and you decide to jump back in the single, that's very hard. But if you're in a, in a single you can always jump back into an eight. You know, it's, it's much easier to adjust to a big boat than it is to go from a big boat to a small boat. So there was always a fallback, but I weighed up my options uh, after the World Champs and, and looked at you know, a lot of information, and I decided that my, my best chance forward was going to be going in the single, and so far that's working out, but you know, there's still some results to happen, and, and I've now got to go and prove that uh, you know, I am good enough uh, to be competing on the world stage, and obviously uh, that's going to happen at the World Cups. How are you feeling generally about your form and your progress? I think that you were actually a little bit injured at the North Island Champs last month. Have you got through that? Yeah, I just had a, a shoulder niggle, I guess you'd, you'd say, but it was took me out of full training for two weeks so it was a, a little bit niggly um, definitely back this week I've, I've been back to, to full full fitness and things are going well and really confident of where I'm at because you know I've got a, I've got a lot of data from over the years and you know I'm very much uh, you know where I need to be in sort of January. How far off are you in terms of let's say making an Olympic final um, do you have a time in mind? To be honest, it's, it's pretty hard to tell you that right now um, because, like, I, I have uh, obviously I, I tried to race at the North Island Champs and wasn't particularly capable of of racing. So that's one of the reasons that I was, I was trying to race um, because I, I wanted to sort of get that that gauge. Um, all I can go off is is my training, and you know, my training compared to sort of Rio in January, um, right where I I was, or if not better than I was then. So that's pretty exciting. But you know, I haven't been tested in that that sort of top end stuff, and we've got our national champs in a couple of weeks, so that'll be obviously a good gauge. But um, I haven't done the work yet to to be fast at that top end speed because I've very much been focused on that on that base and, and making that as, as uh, big as I can. And because you've been um, in these 
positions before you've been to to Olympics already. You must be pretty confident you can cover a fair amount of ground between now and the Olympics. Yeah, definitely. And and as I say, this just gives me a, a good ability just to to have one one sort of build into that Olympics because this is a a pretty short year. Um, you know, when I got back in the single, I had ten months uh, to put it all together. So that's not a lot a lot of time. Um, so you know, this, this certainly buys me another six or seven weeks, which you know usually you'd be sort of coming up to a peak. Uh, whereas now I can just just focus pretty much on that that base work and and making sure that I've um, got that that big base before you start building in that speed work. And you know, certainly by the World Cups, um, I'd like to be showing some some pretty good form and pretty good speed that I'm right up with the best in the world. Double Olympic rowing champion Mahe Drysdale there speaking with Bridget Tunnicliffe. New Zealand Olympic race walker Quentin Rue is disappointed and confused after the Court of Arbitration for Sport terminated an appeal to have the women's 50km walk included at this year's Tokyo Games. Rue was among a group of seven athletes who filed appeals against the International Olympic Committee and World Athletics, but the court ruled the issue was out of its jurisdiction. I spoke with Rue about a decision he says doesn't make sense. It's sort of a bit confusing. There are court, the, the name of them is the Court of Arbitration for Sport. You'd think that if they're arbitrating on a sport matter, that that would be the court that you'd go to, but apparently not. So um, I haven't spoken to, to Paul, the lawyer, about exactly what that means or exactly what court is appropriate or what court does have jurisdiction over this kind of issue. What it does mean, though, that in the, the way that it does rule against us is, I mean, we, we've kind of been fighting this one since, the end of 2018 uh, was brought before CAS in uh, April, May 2019, and it's taken them nine months really to come up with this decision that they can't uh, hear the case. What that has done is it, it means that the window for actually qualifying for the Olympics is, is rapidly closing. So even if we found the court that was responsible for hearing a case like this, and even if they ruled in our favour, then probably the time frame is almost not enough time before the Olympics actually happens. So even if we even if we did get that um, positive ruling subsequent to this, um, that would essentially be a ruling against us anyway because the outcome that we want wouldn't be possible. So in that sense, yeah, it, it's incredibly disappointing to, first of all, to, to find that out, but more importantly, to only find out now. So if you said you brought this to CAS in April and May last year, do you have any idea why it's taken them that long to come up with this decision that they just can't do anything about it in general? No, so the, the in terms of the time frame, we had to file it at the end of April. Um, the decision that we would, um, that there was a an appealable decision, uh, and they accepted that, that the, that the decisions made by World Athletics and by the International Olympic Committee were legally appealable. So then the, the, all the paperwork in terms of the case was sent in on the 15th of May, so that which was when they officially started hearing the case. CAS sets themselves the deadline of everything having to be resolved within three months of that date. So that took us to August the 15th. Since then, we've had five deadlines, which they just keep pushing back. The, the most recent one was they, they were meant to have reached a verdict and published that on January the 31st and that was the fifth deadline that they missed 
and then so we only found out about it uh, today. So it was the yeah, the fourth of Feb. And again, there was the, the the strange decision that normally there's about 48 hours where they inform the uh, interested parties before they actually publicise it to give the right of appeal. And they for some reason they they waived that and they just published this all. So it's, it's a very confusing thing, especially for me. I'm just a humble physio and an athlete. I, I don't really have too much understanding of sort of the legal ins and outs, but quite why it's taken so long, I, I have absolutely no idea. Hmm. In terms of your involvement, how, how did you become involved in this whole case from the start? So I've got a blog which a few people read, and um, one of the guys who reads it um, was was Paul Demeester, who is the um, lawyer who's kind of um, masterminded the appeals process and the, the push to get equality in track and field. Um, so unbeknownst to me, he was he was sort of reading what I was writing over the years, which which has included things about you know questioning why there was this inequality in the sport. Um, I've been you know banging on that particular drum in various forms for a number of years, um, and just trying to get answers about why athletics are set up in the way that it is, and in the charter, and same with the Olympic charter. There's equalities all over it. They're saying that they're not discriminating against gender, and they're saying that they're doing all the stuff for for equality. And then, you know, you bring a case like this and say, well, can you give us some equality? Can you make you know men and women have the same number of events? And they just turn around and say, no, they can't. Um, so I've kind of been venting my frustration with that over a number of years. Uh, Paul kind of got in touch with me and, and asked if I'd be an appellant in the case. Um, so. There's me and I think six uh, female 50k walkers who are who are the appellants. I'm the only male um, on board. One of the other things Paul mentioned was that I have been really lucky to walk in the 50 kilometre uh, race walk at two Olympics, and I feel that it's, uh, um, if I've got this opportunity, then the same opportunity should be available to women. That was Olympic race walker Quentin Rue talking about his involvement in an appeal to include the 50 kilometre walk for women at the Tokyo Olympics. Despite a week of wild weather in parts of the South Island, the 38th edition of the coast-to-coast multi-sport race got underway on Friday morning. Both defending champions in the men's and women's one-day classic are back, with the fastest finishing the 243km slog in around 11 hours. But 80% of the field every year are what race director Glenn Curry calls everyday people, including Dave Maitland, who this year is taking part in the event for a 26th time. I caught up with Dave to find out just what he loves so much about the coast to coast. Probably two main things, and that's how varied the course is. It's never the same, and people are just, whether they're first-timers or, or people who have done it many times, they're just um, so passionate, A, about um, getting out there and doing something, and, and 90% of them are passionate about the environment as well. You know, just about people getting off the couch and, you know, it's just great to help those sort of people along the way. Over 25 years of doing it, I imagine you've had some pretty amazing moments and some pretty challenging times as well. What are some of the more memorable stories from your time doing the race over the years? It mostly relates to people. One with um, when we took uh, Nilu, who's blind, through the race to see a person with that form of disability and, and uh, not look at it as a disability and just get on and, and do it. That was pretty amazing. Um, meet a lot of people like that. That's all they want to do is get out 
and, and do the race and be part of it. Some that just want to do it because they want to see it on the CV. Some that want to do it because they're keen on improving themselves and challenging themselves. It's obviously a brutal race, but you mentioned you go through some amazing country. Do you get a chance to appreciate that, to take that in, even though you've been back multiple times and you are focusing on putting one foot in front of the other or you know the next pedal stroke or the next paddle stroke? Do you get a chance to sort of appreciate and take in the amazing scenery that there is on this course? In the past, there's a couple of places in each of the sections where I always settle back and realise where you are and what you're doing and, the, and some of the history you go back to the coast and some of the little settlements you go through or the old settlements that used to be there and it sort of gives you a, um, a sense of the journey that the people in the old gold mining times, the, the challenges that they would have gone through going through that same same route and then up in the, up in the mountains just doesn't get better than up there and, and same in the Waimak Gorge, you know, that's a special place that it's a shame more people don't get to actually um, experience it. That was Dave Maitland, who's taking part in the coast-to-coast multi-sport race for a 26th time this weekend. And that'll do it for Extra Time this week. Thanks again to Peter McLashan for coming in for an interesting chat on all things cricket. And thanks to you out there for tuning in. I'm Clay Wilson, wishing you a great sporting weekend. We'll catch you all in seven days' time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.